talk about ice balls. In this case, giant, huge ice balls. We predicted before 2015 that this would be the year of the dwarf planet, and indeed it was, both with the Dawn spacecraft's rendezvous with Ceres, the largest asteroid, and the New Horizons mission that zipped past Pluto. Both worlds have been described as dwarf planets as part of the screwed-up terminology, which nobody can really sort out. Before we talk about that, though, I do want to note that it's long been recognized that the objects out at the edge of the solar system tend to be icy bodies. It was noted several years ago that a well, relatively new type of object, at least in, again, this mixed-up naming called centaurs, these are asteroid-like bodies out somewhere past Saturn, the largest of which was something like 100 miles across, when it got close in its orbit started to emit vapor or steam. It turns out it's probably a really large comet. If you really take a step back and take a look at it, you might well describe both Ceres and Pluto as really big comets, since they are composed largely of ice and rock. A new study has shown that some of these mega comets out there at the edge of the solar system may represent a significant threat to life here on Earth, as if we, you know, didn't have enough of those. When we do get around to getting Emily Lochtewala on this program, we're going to pose that question to her. What, what about that new study? We decided to postpone bringing Emily on the program because, well, there's been such a slow return of data from the New Horizons mission because, well, it's like a couple of, you know, refrigerator bulbs out there in the orbit of Pluto in terms of the, the wattage they're sending back. It's actually more like a couple of hundred watt bulbs, but still, you can imagine from that far away, there's... Not a big major stream of data coming back, but it is slowly, day by day, week by week, month by month, and as it's doing so, we're getting some remarkable photographs from the edge of the solar system. Ceres had a few surprises. There's these white spots in a crater nobody can figure out, uh, and one, one estimate is they may be Epsom salts. Well, they didn't call them that, but their magnesium sulfate is what they're speculating these white deposits of, of something or other may be, and... That's what you make Epsom salts out of. That was an interesting aspect of, uh, of Ceres, but, you know, compared to Pluto, it was pretty much a dull place. Pluto, on the other hand, to everyone's astonishment, turns out to be a much more complicated world than anybody would have guessed. In fact, as noted on this program, that one shot looking back at Pluto, once the, uh, the, the spacecraft had gone past it and turned around... It's one of the most striking photos, I think, ever taken of the solar system. It shows mountains, plains, uh, an atmosphere that's layered. It's a fantastic photo. And it turns out the surface is quite colorful. It's got patches of what appear to be ice, in some cases perhaps ice composed of liquid nitrogen or frozen nitrogen that, you know, warms up enough to flow like a glacier, interspersed with red areas composed of organic compounds that the ultraviolet light, even that far out, cooks into these things called tholins. Personally, we just can't get enough of this planetary science stuff. We're looking forward to more of it. 
in 2016 as these two spacecraft continue to radio stuff back and we continue to traipse about on the surface of Mars at the Gale Crater. The thing I love the most about Pluto is the fact that nobody can figure out what could be generating the heat that is driving these geological processes out there at the edge of the solar system. No one has a clue. But perhaps we'll get closer to an answer as more data streams in. You know what? Let's do a little bit more science here. I have Discover Magazine's The Year in Science, the 100 top stories of 2015. They start out with Pluto, as well they should. The number two item was related to these bones they found in a South African cave of a new species of primitive humans. They're calling them Homo naledi, and a lot more data is going to come out of uh, those bones once they, you know, probe their secrets. And speaking of icy bodies, I didn't even mention the fact that the Rosetta spacecraft is still whipping around Comet 67P, and it's continuing to send us data back about uh, the activity of that ball of ice. Their item number 26 was also from Planetary Science. Uh, look back at Mercury. Back on April 30th, the Messenger spacecraft, after getting progressively closer and closer looks to the surface of the first planet, was finally allowed to crash into it. Took some interesting photos. Discover Magazine shows one of the Caloris Basin. At 1,000 miles across, it represents one of the largest known asteroid impacts in the solar system. One thing I've always find curious about Mercury is that if you go on the exact opposite side of the planet where that asteroid or comet or whatever it was, this huge piece of something smacked into the surface, you will find jumbled terrain. The shock waves passed through the planet when they got to the other side, they all sort of ran into one another. And uh, this curiosity on the planet Mercury may have something to do with what happened here on Earth 63 million years ago. Scientists continue to focus in on the fact that while it seems pretty clear that the Chicxulub crater in Yucatan was responsible for a great deal of the havoc that wiped out a lot of the life on Earth, including the dinosaurs, it does seem that it may all represent a one-two punch, because given the configuration of the continents 63 million years ago, it may turn out that the shock waves from that impact may have traveled through the Earth, as they did on Mercury, and when they got to the other side, may have disrupted the planet's geology. At that point, it would have come out in what is today India, and started a massive series of lava eruptions known as the Deccan Traps. It's all pretty interesting, and I, I, I can just summarize by saying I know it was a really bad time 63 million years ago to have been in the real estate market. I also like item number 41, scientists digging in Antarctica, drilled a half-mile deep hole through the ice and found a lake, which exists under the Ross ice shelf, and down there they found all sorts of crustaceans and fish. And you might well ask, what is supporting this ecosystem? Well, they're not sure, but they say it may be nourished, at least in part, by microbes that feed on organic goo in the subglacial mud, which is the remains, which is the remains of ancient plankton that died and sank to the bottom millions of years ago when the world was warmer and this place was sunlit. And item number 76 in Discover Magazine's uh, Top Science Stories of 2015 involves research done here at UC Davis. The research was related to neuropathic pain, which, unlike things like kidney stones or appendicitis, cannot be attributed to some form of inflammation. The UCD researchers have concluded that neuropathic pain is triggered when the body experiences endoplasmic reticulum stress. Now, the endoplasmic reticulum is folded up structure, little 
many structures inside of our cells. In this case, the production and transport of protein exceeds the cell's capacities. Research was conducted on diabetics because they're known to have a high risk of neuropathic pain. So in this case, they got a hold of diabetic rats that had neuropathic symptoms, which in this case was hypersensitivity to touch and a lack of heat sensation. When researchers treated these rats with a compound that, that blocks ER stress, the pain symptoms disappeared. The author of the study, Bruce Hammack, was cited as saying that medications have historically focused on turning down the nerve response to pain, but now we've found one way to block the stress signal that generates the pain. In further good news, it notes that while it usually takes years for a discovery to translate into new medication, there may be a shortcut in this case because a medication that blocks ER stress is already on the market to treat an entirely different condition called urea cycle disorder. Promising stuff and bravo to UCD. And in some bad news among science stories, number 84 must be cited, although we're trying to steer away from bad stuff at the end of the year, but... It turns out that no, tropical deforestation rates are not falling. Personally, as I look at the picture of what's being done down in, in Brazil as they basically lop out chunks of rainforest to put cattle grazing land, you have to address a couple issues, whether it does not start making sense to consider boycotting cattle and also boycotting palm oil. I'll have more to say about that in future installments. All right, here's another... Discover Magazine cited science issue, which we think is pretty cool. We talked about this a couple of years in the program, that people were out there trying to find the sun's siblings. I mean, as we understand it, there are basically solar nurseries out there, gas clouds that uh, condense and usually form many different suns. Uh, it's been speculated that if we could find other stars out there that have a fingerprint that seem to have the same composition as our sun, we, will be able, we might be able to say that, well, you know, this is one of the original siblings of our, uh, our local star. So it is that Ivan Ramirez, an astronomer at the University of Texas at Austin, has been out there trying to find some other 4.6 billion-year-old stars that match our sun. And they were pleasantly shocked a couple of years ago when they found a really good candidate. It's a star called HD 162826. They apparently were just testing the techniques they'd use for a real search, and this preliminary search popped up this particular star. It turns out that the chemical composition matched to our own sun is what they're calling uncanny. And even more curious, when they calculated its orbit... And even more curious, when they did some calculations based on the star's location and motion, they calculated that it must have been very close to our sun billions of years ago. So if they found a member of our sun's birth family, maybe. Pretty cool. I have to confess, this, this item piqued my curiosity, as I hope it's piquing yours. So I looked it up on Wikipedia, and it turns out that this sibling of our sun is located in the constellation Hercules. It's about 110 light years away. And although you can't spy it with the naked eye, it turns out even with a low-power pair of binocs and a star chart, you should be able to find it. And if you do make the effort, dear listener, let us know how that turned out. All right, one final space item. I was not aware of this fact, and I don't know whether you were, dear listener, but apparently in 2012, we just missed another Carrington event. As talked about in Radio Parallax back in 1859, a 
huge eruption, a huge brilliant solar flare was observed by an amateur astronomer, and um, it struck the Earth a couple days later and just raised hell with our electronics at the time. Of course, back in 1859, electronics pretty much meant telegraph systems. It's noted that if we get another such event of similar power with our current electrical system all over the globe, we're going to be in trouble. And although I was unaware of it, apparently in July of 2012, an event with as much power as what happened in 1859 did erupt from the surface of the sun, but it missed us. And it turned out that event back in 2012 missed the position of our planet by something like a week of where we were in space. I'm not sure whether it was, you know, before or after. But we know for sure it was the real deal because uh, of all the spacecraft that we have out in the solar system, this flare did hit a solar observatory. It's a spacecraft labeled Stereo-A, and it was almost ideally equipped to measure the parameters of that event. And it's a good thing we have some spacecraft that aren't just orbiting the Earth, but are actually out there traveling through interplanetary space, so they can, you know, give us this needed data. One thing is clear, we are going to be hit by an event in the future. There's just no way that we will not be. Some say we might be catapulted back into the 19th century for a matter of months or even years as our electrical system goes to hell. Curiously, Congress, back in 2001, established an electromagnetic pulse commission. <laughs> well, when Congress starts forming commissions, you know they're serious. Apparently, it recommended a combination of intelligence gathering, disaster relief planning, and research to brace for an attack. Brace for an attack! Run for your lives! The illustrious former director of the CIA, James Woolsey, last year told the House Armed Services Committee that two-thirds of the U.S. population would likely perish over a period of years. Of course, we really should clarify, in this case, we're talking about man-made electromagnetic pulses, not something coming off the sun, because naturally, if it's man-made, it's going to come from a rogue state like North Korea, and of course, the solution is going to be to spend more money on our military. Isn't that the solution to just about everything? But I digress. There will be an upside the next time uh, the Earth gets smacked by one of these things. Back in 1859, during the Carrington event, there were aurora borealises visible as far south as Hawaii. So, um, at least it'll be pretty. All right, there's another story that came in the Sacramento Bee uh, back in November that just seemed so bizarre, I, I couldn't believe it. It was about using pigeons to diagnose cancer. Apparently using pigeons to look at, like, tissue slides to assess them for malignancy. Yes, it sounds pretty cuckoo on the face of it. But it turns out if you're a pathologist and you have to make this assessment, you've got to make a lot of complicated judgments on what the edges of, say, a suspicious area look like. How does the cell morphology line up? And uh, this ain't easy, folks. There's a lot of things that go into determining whether it's a malignant cell or a normal cell or whether some area is starting to get, you know, um, uh, disorganized, as cancer cells do. And given that birds have excellent vision and an ability to, uh, you know, discern patterns that maybe aren't that obvious to the human eye, evidently <laughs> some enterprising researchers uh, uh, elected to show pigeons slides, and then when they pecked at the part that had the cancer, reward them, reinforcing the idea that if you can pick out where the cancer is, you're going to get some treats. And believe it or not, the studies showed that when the pigeons were shown these slides, that 
they were able to accurately identify malignant or non-malignant tissue 77% of the time, which establishes that the birds were not acting by rote, but had in fact learned to find images of malignant tissue in the slides by using, you know, whatever criteria. Visual things that perhaps aren't as obvious to we humans. Pretty interesting stuff. And doggone it, we really ought to get Richard Levinson, professor of pathology and laboratory medicine here at UC Davis Health Systems, to really explain this to us in some better detail. It, it's pretty cool. For his part, Mr. Merlin expresses the opinion that he hopes we're never going to approach the day where someone's going to say, well, the pigeon says you got six months to live. And for my part, I'd like to go on record as saying as though I'm willing to let the pigeons take a, a stab at the diagnosis, but I will not let them get involved in the procedures. And speaking of fowl, another study done at Davis, this, this case cited by The Economist, uh, conducted by Catherine Dewey and Seth Adu Afarwa, examined the effects of exposure to chicken feces on stunting growth in children in Zimbabwe, which just sounds like, huh? I should note that the, the Davis study was also dovetailing with some work done at Johns Hopkins University, but someone apparently noticed that children out free to roam in Zimbabwe, as evidently they are, will eat dirt, as children will do everywhere. In some cases, when that dirt was contaminated by chicken feces, it had a bad effect. It actually stunted their growth. In fact, one in five children there was found to be so affected, prompting a study of why this should be. And why this should be uh, may be that some unfriendly microbes found in the chicken droppings get into the human intestines of these children and cause problems. A loss of villi, which are the finger-like projections from the gut wall that absorb nutrients, and maybe also loosening of the joints between cells that line the gut. we got to take a look at that in 2016 as well. And some less entertaining animal-related news, we would note that um, the folks up in Northern California apparently are bitching about wolves. Evidently, we have no sooner developed a wolf population of very small numbers up in Northern California when the ranchers up there are all already complaining about livestock depredation. Yes, evidently state wildlife officials issued a 48-page investigative report last week raising fears over this wolf comeback. I mean, of course they would. We've reported on state wildlife officials on this program in the past, and um, we've come to conclude that if there's a wrong side of the issue, they'll find themselves on it. Let's chalk that up to being yet another story we, we will return to in 2016. And we always appreciate it, dear listeners, when you remind us of things we say we're going to cover because uh, we, don't, we don't always get back to them as soon as we'd like. But generally, we, we do get back to them. And, you know, among other recurrent themes, in this case related to our legal system, we cannot resist returning to the story of Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow currently being prosecuted in San Francisco for, among other things, murder. Just to excerpt a bit from an article that appeared in the B, in the midst of his trials, note that Chow has said that he did run an escort service and did deal cocaine and was involved in a street gang. But upon his release from prison back in 1989 for a second time, he got jobs at a supermarket and law office. He claims he continued to face scrutiny from police, and they talked to his employers, and the FBI picked him up on suspicion of involvement in a jewelry heist. During his trial, Chow testified in English, although it's not his first language. His attorney said he wanted the jury to hear that Chow doesn't always understand English and that his direction and that his diction and tenses are not always used correctly. How that's exculpatory in a case that involves murder, we don't know. 
And we do have to confess somewhat guiltily that one reason we keep talking about this story is that we just like to talk about Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow. Now, someone we don't like very much, unfortunately, because we did used to like him, Bill Cosby, has now shown up in the news again because he apparently is suing a model over her claims that he drugged her. Now, you got to keep in mind that since late 2014, more than 50 women, most of whom have not sued Bill Cosby, have nevertheless accused him of sexual abuse dating back decades. And evidently, they're now going to charge Bill Cosby with at least one of these um, one of these alleged crimes. But he's also gone on the offensive in his countersuit. Bill Cosby claims that uh, Beverly Johnson has defamed him, making malicious, opportunistic, and false and defamatory accusations of sexual misconduct that are nothing more than an opportunistic attempt to extract financial gain from him. Considering the eerie similarity with which this many women have... um, told their tale of woe related to Bill Cosby. Uh, we don't like his chances in the court. But then again, this is the American court system. Anything is possible. In fact, while I'm very definitely, definitely not going to go into details, I do want to report a brief conversation I had with a Superior Court judge at a party in 2015. When I inquired about a judge related to a case which I had been following, let's say, I asked Judge X what he thought about Judge Y. The response was, political appointee doesn't know the law. To which I responded, I'm no lawyer, I don't really know the law either, but based on my observations, you have to be correct. All right, as Amy Goodman often says, we have to leave it there. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. I think for our third and final segment, I'm going to re-air... An obituary we did. We do those on this program in the third segment on a regular basis. In this case, it's not about an individual, but it's about the loss of the David Letterman show. Last May, our pal Gary Chu came on the program to talk about David and other stuff, and I think that's what we're going to close this year with. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. 